Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome. <coughs> welcome to Essex Church. Thank you for coming here to join in worship this morning. This gathered community is formed by all those who choose to come through our doors. It's nurtured by all those who show up each week and contribute to the life of this church in so many different ways. It's enriched by all our wider connections, with those scattered far and wide by the demands of modern life, who still feel they're part of Kensington Unitarians through listening to the podcast, receiving our newsletter, or simply holding us in their heart. If you're here for the first time today, you are most welcome. I hope this morning holds something of that you were looking for. Or perhaps you're a regular here, an old hand, and this church feels like your spiritual home. Your presence and your commitment is so important. You keep the flame alive for others to follow. Whoever you are, however you are, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we're glad to have you here with us today. And please do stay for tea and biscuits after if you can. Our opening words are by Libby Stoddard. We gather together. These are familiar words to many of us in this place. We gather together. We, called here not by name, not by special invitation, but we who are here. We who, walking in the door, come in, anonymously, burdened and borne by our visions, yearnings, despairs and solitudes. We gather, called here not by law, nor by outer compulsion, but by inward necessities we come, alone or with others, casual yet intent, drawing in, drawing toward, drawing near. We gather together. Together is the hardest, the most difficult thing. For within and without this building and this room, we may irk, frustrate and anger each other on occasion, as often as we lend or give support. Together is a place. Together is a way. Together is a focus, an acknowledgement that we who gather are seekers and equal in our seeking. <coughs> Let's light our chalice flame now, as we do each week, and as fellow Unitarians and Unitarian Universalists do the world over. This simple ritual connects us to so many kindred spirits, those people of liberal faith who came before us and those who will follow after we are gone. Fire consumes and it casts a bright light. May our small chalice flame consume our regrets for the past, our fears about the future and our worries about today. May this small flame light for us a path of joy and peace. And let's take those joys and concerns into a time of prayer and reflection now, based on the words of Krista Taves. Take a moment to get yourself settled and in the right frame of body and mind for us to pray together. Spirit of life, God of all love, source of all in whom we live and move and have our being. We come together in prayer, even though some of us struggle with what that means. 
We come together to stand before that which is greater than us, although we may struggle to say what that is. And so on this day we pray for those things that we struggle with, for the conflicts we feel within ourselves and between us and those we love. We pray for guidance, compassion and the opening of a path. We pray for those things that give us joy and hope, for those things that we trust in, believe in, would sacrifice for. These are gifts of grace, and maybe we need not define them in order to savour them, rejoice in them, be thankful for them. What we do know is that we gather here this morning with all kinds of needs. Some face physical problems and are in need of healing. Others need healing of a different kind, emotional and spiritual. Some face family problems. Some are weary with life's struggles and seek assurance that these struggles will someday pass. <coughs> Others face the anguish of difficult decisions for themselves, their families and friends. For each of us we speak the deepest prayers of our hearts in different ways, knowing that what it means for them to be answered will look and feel different for each one of us. May we somehow this morning be met at the point of our differences and also in the places where we are one, of the same breath of life that courses through all that lives. May we hold in our hearts gratitude for those things which bless us with their presence. Forgiveness for the ways we have turned from those blessings and the willingness to open ourselves anew to this beautiful and hurting world. Amen. Our first reading today is from Patrick Cheng. This book, From Sin to Amazing Grace, is the inspiration, or one of the inspirations for today's service. Uh, at the time this book was written, Patrick Chen was a professor of historical and systematic theology at the Episcopal, Din uh, Episcopal Divinity School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Nowadays, he's got a parish ministry in an Anglo-Catholic church, the Church of the Transfiguration in New York City. He's written several books of queer theology in which he challenges the religious rights understanding of key doctrines, and he explores traditional religious con concepts from new angles to try and make them speak to people who had previously felt excluded by the Christian faith. In this reading, he uses some quite traditional Christian language, the sort that perhaps we don't always use here. Try not to let that put you off. It would be a shame if the language stopped you hearing the useful message underneath. And I think his perspective on sin and grace may speak to us Unitarians too. That's Tristan. I first learned that I was a sinner in junior school. Struggling to understand my budding attraction to other boys, I turned to my local public library for help. Being a devout Catholic, I found there a reference book on church doctrine, and I furtively turned to the entry on homosexuality. There I learned, to my horror, that I was not only a sinner, but I was intrinsically disordered. I shut the book in shame, and my relationship with God was never the same again.
It took another 15 years and a good dose of God's amazing grace before I was able to walk into a church out of love and not fear. In those intervening years, I had met and fallen in love with my now husband, Michael. Through Michael, I had experienced the power of God's incarnational love in a way that no theology book or doctrine could ever convey. Because of the grace of this relationship, that is, a relationship that was a pure gift from God and not something that I had earned or deserved, my eyes and ears were opened once more to the good news. Given the traumatic experiences of so many gay, lesbian, bisexual and transgender people, including myself, with respect to the doctrine of sin and grace, why do we need to give it our attention, let alone an entire book on the subject? I strongly believe that now, more than ever, it is critical for us to address the issue of sin and grace head on and to reclaim these doctrines for ourselves. The traditional understanding of sin and grace in Western Christianity has centered on notions of crime and punishment. We have come to understand sin as a crime. That is, sin is a violation of God's laws, whether biblical or natural, and thus it demands punishment. Grace, then, in this view, is God's acquittal for our crime and our rehabilitation so that we will no longer sin again. We need to move away from this traditional crime-based model and towards a Christ-centered model of sin and grace. Instead of understanding sin as a crime that needs to be punished, we need to understand it as immaturity or incomplete growth, much in the same way that children and adolescents and even adults make mistakes in the course of growing up. Simply put, we mess up because we are human beings who have not yet arrived at our final state of maturity. Our ultimate goal is to be made divine in the image of Christ. Grace, therefore, can be understood as becoming divine. Instead of relying on primarily vice lists and viewing the Bible as a book of rules, we are challenged to interpret the gospel in light of our relationship with Jesus Christ, particularly as understood through the lens of our own social contexts. As Paul wrote in his letter to the Galatians, it is time that we leave behind a disciplinarian or legalistic model of sin and grace and embrace a more spiritually mature and challenging model of sin and grace in which we are constantly clothed with Christ. I believe that a Christ-centered model of sin and grace is a much more helpful way of thinking about such issues for LGBT Christians their allies, and all who have been hurt by the legalistic doctrines of the past. Broken Shell, a poem by Kitty Schooley. I remember climbing to see a robin's egg in a nest, so perfect and beautiful and blue. Young friends had shown it to me and warned me to beware. 
Only look, do not touch. I was enticed, it looked like a jewel. Surely one touch would do no harm. But the shell fractured and the yolk and white leaked out. Embarrassed, I hid the shell and told no one. I'm sorry for the children who returned to view the special egg and found nothing. I'm sorry for the mother bird whose offspring was never seen. I'm sorry for the life of the bird who never even got to become whole. And it seems to me that most of our sins are not out of malice or meanness, but simply not heeding a warning and handling something fragile in a clumsy way. In his famous work, Confessions, uh, 398 CD, St. Augustine recounts an episode from his youth in which he stole pears from an orchard. He didn't need them, admitting that he stole them just for the joy of stealing, sinned just for the joy of sinning. The act weighed so heavily on his conscience that it helped convince him that human nature is hopelessly depraved. This poem, A Farmer Feeds, is Bill Neely's response. So you pilfered my pears, you young, severe boy. You plucked from my branches the sweetest of fruits only to throw them to hogs. Tell me, have you never seen my trees in bloom, their surprising colour, their bursting blossoms, the pulsing life in their fragile petals? Have you never watched my pears grow faithfully from seed and water, air and earth, kissed by sun into sustenance? <coughs> have you never eaten a pear slowly, eyes closed? mind restful, your world wrapped up in the gift of taste. Come, my young, anxious friend, take these pears from my orchard, gifted to me, my gift to you. For you are not depraved, just deprived, famished, and a farmer feeds. The rest is maths. Won't you take one to the stream, take off your shoes, dip your feet, eat, and feel the coolness in your mouth like water in your skin? Won't you take one to one who hungers, your head bowed, hands cupped, and offer from the fullness of your heart? Won't you take one home, slice it into pieces, dip them into honey, and one by one feed them to your love? Won't you speak gently to yourself, caring less about the joy of sinning slightly, and more about the joy of living fully? And find in the pilfered pear not depravity, but hunger, a hunger only sated by the grace of this world. I've now come to a time of meditation, so you might want to put down anything you don't need to be holding and make yourself as comfortable as you can in your chair. You might want to close your eyes, soften your gaze, focus on the candles on the, in the centre, perhaps. I'm going to read some words by the Unitarian Universalist Richard S. Gilbert. It's a reflection where he expands on a quotation from the author E.B. White, which we'll hear first. And after that, we'll have a good few minutes for silent meditation. 
and stillness. As ever, you're free to think your own thoughts, meditate in your own way. These words are just an offering which might lead you somewhere else entirely. I'll sound our bell after a few minutes to bring the silence to a close. It's hard to know when to respond to the seductiveness of the world and when to respond to its challenge. If the world were merely seductive, that would be easy. If it were merely challenging, that would be no problem. But I arise in the morning torn between the desire to improve the world and a desire to enjoy the world. That makes it hard to plan the day. So said E.B. White. And Richard S. Gilbert responds, I rise in the morning torn between the desire to save the world or to savour it, to serve life or enjoy it, to savour the sweet taste of my own joy or to share the bitter cup of my neighbour, to celebrate life with exuberant step or to struggle for the life of the heavy laden. What am I to do when the guilt at my bounty clouds the sky of my vision? when the glow which lights my every day illuminates the hurting world around me. To savour the world or to save it, God, take from me the burden of my question. But no, you will not let me be. You will not stop my ears to the cries of the hurt and the hungry. You will not close my eyes to the sight of the afflicted. What is that you say? To save, one must serve. To savour, one must save. That one will not stand without the other. Forgive me. In my preoccupation, in my concern for my own life, I had forgotten. Forgive me, God, and make me whole.
So, some thoughts on sin and grace and how these tricky theological, theological concepts might speak to us Unitarians today. Last Sunday, over our congregational lunch, more than one person came up to me, having heard about the theme that was coming up this week, and said, but I don't believe in sin, or words to that effect. And of course, this is not an unexpected reaction amongst Unitarians. Many of us have more or less rejected the concept of sin, or so it seems, perhaps largely because we associate it with the religious right, and with other groups who have condemned a lot of us, or a lot of our friends down the years, as being thoroughly sinful in one way or another. Our beliefs our actions, our identity, our very existence perhaps, condemned as wicked, immoral or wrong. I can't help thinking back to my youth and the immortal words of Neil Tennant from the 80s number one hit by the Pet Shop Boys. He sang, for everything I long to do, no matter when or where or who, has one thing in common too, it's a sin. Everything I've ever done, everything I ever do, every place I've ever been, everywhere I'm going to, it's a sin. And if that's the main sort of exposure you've had to the concept of sin, the impression that, you, everything, that everything you've done, you might do, or you might think about doing in the future is probably wrong and bad, in the view of certain religious hardliners at least, with a special focus on pleasures of the body, um, things that these hardliners often regard as sexual sins, which they seem to be particularly, if not pruriently, interested in. It's not surprising in that case that you might not want anything to do with that idea of sin. Sin can seem like no more than a religious gloss conveniently overlaid on a bunch of other people's conservative social norms as an unwelcome means of social control. Beyond that idea that certain of our acts are simply regarded as sinful in the eyes of God, there's that traditional notion of original sin, the tricky doctrine most strongly associated with Augustine, that poor boy who stole a pear and uh, seemed to have such a negative view of humanity for the rest of his days. That doctrine perpetuated by the likes of Luther and Calvin, the doctrine of original sin that claims that humanity has been in a state of sin ever since the fall, when Adam and Eve were rather naughty in the Garden of Eden. In the Catholic Catechism, it says that Adam lost his original God-given holiness at that point, then Adam and Eve transmitted this wounded and depraved human nature to their descendants, leaving all of humanity weakened, subject to ignorance, suffering, and inclined to sin. Original sin, you won't be surprised to hear, is not a doctrine that many Unitarians have got time for. But, as with so many thorny religious concepts, I'd say that Unitarians shouldn't throw out the concept of sin altogether, otherwise I wouldn't be doing a service about it. It depends, after all, what we mean by sin. There are so many different ways of looking at the topic, and I'm going to introduce just a few today. I've got a strong belief that religious liberals like us shouldn't just concede control of religious language, which is so powerful, to other people. So perhaps we can look at rehabilitating this word that our forebears would have used with ease and build our own theology of sin. Reverend Cliff Reed, a retired Unitarian minister, wrote an incredibly useful little guidebook called Unitarian What's That, which will be familiar to the people who are on our How to Be a Unitarian course at the moment. In that book, he had a go at answering the question, what do Unitarians think about sin? And this is what he said. Sin is a word with baggage attached. That's why Unitarians often avoid it or use it only sparingly. 
But that doesn't mean that we pay no attention to the issues that the word involves. A Unitarian view of sin might be this. To sin is willfully to act, speak or even think in a way that one's own conscience condemns as wrong. Alternatively, sin is the failure to act, speak or think in ways that one knows to be right. Or again, to sin is to fall short of the standards of conduct that one's own faith or ethical system regards as ideal. It is missing the mark that we set ourselves. And because we all fall short in this way, there is no room for smugness, self-satisfaction or self-righteousness. Although Unitarians may not use the word sinners, we would agree that we are all imperfect, flawed beings when set beside our models of the ideal. However, we generally take the view that sin is essentially a personal thing. Each one of us is responsible for themselves, although the consequences of our sins will affect others, both now and in the future. So that's one take on the Unitarian view of sin from Cliff Reed, and it's a pretty good start. Another angle could be found in the poem Broken Shell by the Unitarian Universalist author Kitty Schooler that uh, Brian read for us earlier on. For me, that's a really powerful image of the robin's egg, touched carelessly, with no apparent Ill ill intent, by one who thought his actions would do no harm. And yet, the shell breaks, the egg can't be put back together again, and harm is done nonetheless. The brief closing lines of that poem spoke powerfully to me, so I'll repeat them. It seems to me that most of our sins are not out of malice or meanness, but simply not heeding a warning and handling something fragile in a clumsy way. For me, this is a more subtle and more challenging understanding of sin. Sin may not just be about willfully doing what we know in our heart to be harmful or wrong, acting in a way that will hurt other people, or creatures, or society, or the environment. Nor just failing to act when we know our actions could have had a positive impact. The example of the robin's egg makes me wonder about all those times when I may have caused harm to others simply through a lack of sensitivity or awareness, through blundering into a situation, not being malicious or mean, but just being careless in a way I might have been able to avoid. For me, this connects with the idea in our first reading about sin as a sort of immaturity. Sometimes we hurt others accidentally because we don't know any better. But as we grow in spiritual maturity, perhaps we could and should know better. Perhaps you could say we have a spiritual responsibility to keep working on our moral selves. We are flawed human beings. Accidents are going to happen anyway. Perhaps we are called, though, to consciously keep working on our sensitivity and awareness, constantly reflect on our potential impact on others, and to work on informing and forming our conscience. I don't think we can take our conscience for granted as a guide to right and wrong without putting some effort into shaping it in the first place. And of course, all this is work that never ends. It is the work of a lifetime. In order for us to delve into the meaning of sin more deeply, each one of us, individually for ourselves, and to make connection with grace, which is the theme of this month's ministry at Essex Church, I'm going to tell you more about this book by the Episcopalian priest and theologian Patrick Cheng, uh, From Sin to Amazing Grace, one of his few books on queer theology. This is a piece of contextual theology, 
when setting out to do contextual theology, theologians look at the collected riches from their own religious tradition, its scripture, its teachings, its history and its practices, and they attempt to make connections between all that good stuff they've inherited from the past in their tradition and the particular context or setting that they find themselves in right here and now. Contextual theology tries to put the religious experience of the past, as recorded in scripture and tradition, in dialogue with the current experience of the world in which we live. And there are all sorts of specialised contextual theologies that pop up around the world. Latino and Latina theology, black theology, Asian theology, feminist and womanist theology, and the work that Cheng is doing, queer theology. Each of these looks at the experience of a particular group in society and aims to make those new connections between the tradition and the everyday reality so that the religious concepts, stories and guidance for living make more sense in real life. So as you heard in our first reading that Tristan did for us, Patrick Cheng is a gay man who grew up Catholic. His particular context here and now is the LGBT community and his contextual theology is known as queer theology, which is not his name for it or mine, but the academic discipline. And in his book, he sets out his stall. He's all too aware from his everyday experience in America how the language of sin is still used on a daily basis to bash LGBT people and how this horrible experience has driven many of them away from religion altogether. But nonetheless, he still feels that his community would benefit from reclaiming this theological language for themselves. Here's what he has to say about his reasons for pursuing a new theology of sin and grace. He says, Ignoring the doctrines of sin and grace deprives us of the theological tools to describe and critique the true state of the world. How can we adequately describe and critique this world of ours that is filled with violence, economic inequity and sexual exploitation without sin talk? And on the other hand, how can we describe our deepest hopes of reconciliation and healing without grace talk? In his book, Patrick Cheng goes on to develop a queer Christology. He looks at the story of Jesus, which means so much to him, and from the Bible stories and other teachings about Jesus in his wider Christian tradition, he draws out and highlights different understandings of sin and grace, which make sense and come alive in the everyday reality of his life and the life of his community. And he comes up with a new formation of seven deadly queer sins and their seven corresponding amazing graces. These seven opposing pairs of sin and grace might really speak to you, as they do to me, or you might find them rather provocative. Let's see. He talks about the sin of exploitation and the grace of mutuality. The sin of the closet and the grace of coming out the sin of apathy and the grace of activism, the sin of conformity and the grace of transgression, the sin of shame and the grace of pride, the sin of isolation and the grace of interdependence. And the last one he calls the sin of singularity and the grace of hybridity, which I didn't understand at first, but I think he means the sin of either or and the grace of both and. I love that one. Now in the book he unpacks each of these dimensions of sin and grace at great length with real life stories of people's experience which 
in my view, really make it come alive. And of course, I can only share with you this brief headline of his theology in the service. But I'm not telling you about this because I want you to go and adopt Patrick Cheng's theology wholesale and take it off the peg, although there's a lot in it that's very appealing to me. It's more to demonstrate that you're all at liberty to explore the roots of our religious tradition, to play with religious language, and to make those connections between traditional theology and real life here and now. Connections that are meaning for you in the circumstances, the community, and the tradition you happen to find yourself in. What does sin look like from the place where you stand? What are the actions and attitudes that you can see causing harm in this world? And what does grace look like from the place where you stand? What are the corresponding actions and attitudes that bring relief, comfort and joy? Let's carry on pondering these questions, reclaiming religious language and building our own theology together in the days, weeks and years to come. Amen. May whatever activities we engage in this afternoon and in the week ahead help restore us help restore our connections to one another, our sense of hope, beauty and fun in the world, our deep knowing that we have to take care of ourselves and each other with love and joy if we are to soulfully survive the world's mayhem. There is too much hardship in this world not to find joy every day. There's too much injustice in this world to not right the balance every day. There's too much pain in this world to not heal every day. So let us go forth now and do what we are called to do, to make this world more loving, more compassionate, and more filled with the grace of divine presence every day. Amen.